Well, here at uh, Calamesa, we've been adding memories to the treasure that we have that come up when you hear the word camp meeting. And we've had a wonderful time. There are a few I know who are here for the first time, and we're glad you made it for at least this portion of this special time. Camp meeting memories. East Pennsylvania, no, yes, East Pennsylvania Conference. I remember that one of the speakers there was a man by the name of Detweiler. For some reason, at 10 years of age, I thought Detweiler was the most interesting name I'd ever heard. And he talked about work in the Zambezi Union. And that, again, was such a wonderful word to go with his name. Detweiler of the Zambezi Union. Whoa, that was special. But my most prominent memory of that camp meeting was when my brother Maury came running in and say, said to me, Lou, I found the exit. You found what? He said, I found the exit. What's the exit? Come on, I'll show you. And so he led me into a quadrangle of cabins for, uh, for camp meeting, and off on one corner was a big sign, E-X-I-T. That's the exit. So we went into the exit, uh, the cabin that was right there, which obviously had to be the exit, and found all kinds of wonderful things. There were coloring books, and there were other toys and so forth to play with, and we thought somebody certainly has us in mind because they put an exit in here at camp meeting. Well, <clears throat> we were in the midst of uh, having fun when uh, we both began to get just a little bit uneasy because we looked around and it appeared that maybe somebody lived in the exit. <laughs> and that, that we had no business being in there and that the things that we were using and doing were related to somebody, somebody else's possessions. Um, so we exited quickly and... Uh, just got out just in time because we saw the one who was assigned to that cabin come around the corner and go in. So Maury and I, whenever we uh, want to have a little fun with each other, we'll say, hey, why don't we go over to the exit? <laughs> We've been blessed by, by features during this camp meeting time, and I just want to thank everybody because there are a numberless host of people who have put things together in wonderful ways terms of special features, the music, et cetera, and so forth. And I've been blessed to hear my dear colleagues from the religion faculty, the messages they've shared. My dear friend Carla called me on Tuesday. She's she left for Australia on Wednesday, and she said, I'm not going to be there, but I'll be praying for you. And I welcomed that because I needed all the prayer I, I could have. But she took time for me to uh, talk about the sermon with her. I don't want to blame her for the weak parts, but I was thank, thankful for Carla's input, which was very helpful, and there have been others, our pastor and others who have, have been helpful. I actually had a little sermon seminar with Paul Eldridge Thursday. Uh, Paul was, was uh, feeling good and responding well. Many of you remember Paul. And I said to Paul, I've got to preach Sabbath. Would you help me with a sermon seminar? And he said, I think I could do that. So I talked with that dear saint, one of the great giants in my life. And we talked about John 14, 15, 16, and so forth, where 
our message is going to be centered. And I thank God for uh, Paul's prayer as we came to the end of our conversation because it was from the heart and it, it really blessed. A few weeks back, at our breakfast table, <clears throat> after breakfast, when we were following our, uh, our, our practice of taking time for a bit of reading in the good book, uh, Margie and I, for some years now, have been just reading, going through books of the Bible. We've gone through quite a few. We were back at that time in John's Gospel and blessed by it uh, a great deal. That morning, we happened to come to the, uh, last, the last verse in chapter 16. I have told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome. The word is even stronger than that. I have conquered. I have conquered, defeated the world. And Margie and I sat there trying to um, imagine what it would have been like, what it would be like to slip into that little group as they were making their way from the upper room that moonlit Thursday night, Passover time in Jerusalem, on the pathway that led to the Garden of Gethsemane. What it would be like to have heard those last words of Jesus to his closest friends. Now, you read those words, it's clear that Jesus has been talking for some time. And um, there's a serious feel about it all because he tells us he's going to be leaving. He's going away. So these words are goodbye words, important last words. Among the things that he said, you remember, was let not your hearts be troubled. I'm sorry, Jesus. How in the world could our hearts not be troubled? We love you. You are the best friend we've ever had, and we can't bear the thought of being separated from you. Peter really speaks for all of us when he says to Jesus, why can't I go with you? I'm ready, I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus responds, really, Peter? Before dawn, you'll deny me three times. Can you imagine the kind of no one breathing for a moment after that? Can you uh, imagine perhaps Peter's thoughts, thoughts, feelings of the whole group? Wow. Then he, he goes on. He promises that we'll get together again. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He tells them, I'm not abandoning you. Through the gift of the Spirit, I'll be closer to you wherever you go in ways that I couldn't be if I were to stay here just this way. He speaks of, uh, well, that you read through that, those and wonderful chapters, John 13 through, well, the whole rest of the book, but in particular in the setting for what we're thinking of today, those chapters, you might take a look at them this afternoon. The disciples are listening 
They're wondering. They have questions. Sometimes they say to each other, what's he talking about? Did you get it? And sometimes they say to him, what do you mean? And they make a response to what he said. Jesus speaks of himself as the way to the Father. And uh, Philip pipes up and says, oh, good, now we're on solid ground. We'd like to see the Father. Would you show us the Father? We've enjoyed friendship and fellowship with you, but the Father is really important to us. And there's undoubtedly pain, sorrow, disappointment in Jesus' heart and in Jesus' voice as he says to Philip, after I've been with you so long, how is it that you haven't got it yet? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. One of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Wonderful truth. He asked them to love one another. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. Hey, they're not there yet. Count on it. That's a challenge. They still have a long way to go to love each other that way. He speaks of dark days ahead, of times of trouble. He mentions that they will be hated as he will be hated. He tells them that there will be times of weeping, sorrow, grief, mourning, and the world will rejoice. But then he said, you're going to, you're going to have joy. It's going to be like the joy of a woman who's passed through the travail of childbirth and then forgets it all and says it's all worth it because of a newborn child. Jesus talks about the Father and about the Father loving them. Isn't this neat? The Father loves you because you have loved me and you believe that he sent me. Wonderful things going on. And, and at this point, they respond, great, now we understand. You're speaking clearly. We don't have any questions. We really we really are on firm ground here. We believe that you came from God. And then here's another one of those moments that stop you in your tracks. Do you really believe, says Jesus? The time is come. The time is come when you're going to run for home and you'll leave me all alone. Again, Imagine the silence that follows those words. Then he speaks. I've told you these things. It all is for your sake so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. You'll have persecution. There are tough times ahead. But be of good courage. Take heart. I have conquered the world. Wow. What a way to end. What, what, what good news 
What a marvelous note to conclude with. Jesus is going to win. He's going to win, and we are on the winning side. Then John's gospel tells us Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven, and he begins having a conversation with his father. That's the way Jesus and his father were. They just never were out of communion, really, with each other. But he talks with his father. And Jesus, as he looked toward heaven, prayed, Father, the time has come, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And the fact is that that's what Jesus has been about. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then, and then these words, and now, Father, glorify me. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And Jesus reaches back and reminisces, reminisces about eternity past, about that bond of love and fellowship and relationship that is the, at the heart of reality, and that is what, we, what is meant by Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a trio of self-giving, self-serving, serving others, love. Glorify me with the glory, the oneness, the presence that I had with you before the world began. Now, we might wonder, glory, glorify, just what can that mean? Well, we might think at some length about it, but I think we could agree that for sure it must mean something wonderful, right? Glorify me. Father, this is what I want. Would you please do it? This is what I ask. It's got to be something impressive, something good. It has to be something, it seems to me, that fits with conquering the world. So, there we have it. I have conquered the world. That's power. That's power. And the glory I had with you before the world began that's glory, my friends. That's it. But only a few hours later, we stand looking up. Something has gone wrong. Something terribly wrong has happened. It's not hard. It's not hard to determine who is powerful and who is powerless as we stand at Calvary. It's not at all hard to decide who is conqueror and who is conquered, is it? As we look up at Jesus on the cross. 
It's not hard to recognize what is shameful, the most ignominious, shameful way a person could die. It's the utter opposite, really, the absolute opposite of anything we might remotely connect with glory. Right? But wait. And here's the heart of what I want to face with you in these next moments. What if? What if this is the power of God? And what if this is the glory of God? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, in the early cha- the first chapter, talks about talks about the cross. He, he, he makes it clear that, that the cross, this scene which we are remembering, is a stumbling block for Jews who looked forward to a Messiah whose power and conquering will be like they want and understand. And this is no way, shape, or form that which they looked forward to. And the Greeks, he tells us, consider it absolute foolishness. But to those who are called Jews and Greeks and us, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. And he goes on to, with words that you'll remember, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He, this one, who said he conquered the world, who asked to be glorified, has God answered his prayer? Is this God's answer to that earnest prayer to his Father? He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And you remember, he goes on in the second chapter, to tell the folk at Corinth, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. In, in his next epistle, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul remembers the road to Damascus when, as he puts it, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's remembering the Genesis account of creation. The God of creation who said, let there be light, and there was light. Paul tells us that God shined into my life, into my heart. The glory, the the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Glory 
and power. So here we are at Calvary. Really wanting to understand as radically as radical a different way of looking at things could be that this in the universe, in our lives, in this world, in the great controversy, however you want to think about it, this from all time, eternity past to eternity future, this is, this self-sacrificing love, this is the power and the glory of God. This was true and will always be true. And what we see here in terms of the way we define God's power and glory will be this way for as long as time shall last and beyond. Now, it, it seems to me that, that if, that's, if we're on, on, on good ground here, if we're in the arena of truth, that we need to recognize that our understanding of God affects everything about us. I hear people all the time saying, I'm, not, I'm no theologian, but wait a minute. If you're thinking at all about God, you're doing the most important thing you can do, seeking understanding. You are a theologian. Don't be afraid of that term. Say, I'm doing theology. I'm thinking about God in my life. That's what we're doing together here this morning. And our understanding of God affects us in, in oh, every way that you could imagine, ways in which we may not always be conscious, and yet it's there. The God, the character of God, the power and glory of God as we understand it. And it, it seems to me that this, if we think about this, this can make a, a, a big difference in some pretty basic things. Realizing that the power and glory of God, the glory of self-sacrificing love will never change, then let's think about our ideas of the future and about what we're looking for and about the, the advent. Does Jesus slip into our world <clears throat> in disguise and stay here for a relatively short period of time, uh, looking much like a humble servant, and then depart to return, having thrown aside all that humble garb, and he comes back in power and majesty as the world defines it and brings all humanity to its knees by an act of divine omnipotence? Or does Jesus return in a way that fits with Calvary? That is to say, the one who comes as King of kings and Lord of lords with all the holy angels comes as the King of love to serve his longing, responsive people. Uh, think about that a bit. 
I'll have to admit, I think there's been a lot of kind of, I want to see that day, and I want to see, you know, I want to see those who have been rebels and people I don't like, I want to see them get it. Man, I heard of one, uh, one pastor of a particular uh, community of faith said he wanted to be in the midst of a whole group of pastors of a different community of faith because he wanted to have the joy of going up and laughing at them as they weren't taken. Ouch. Pretty bad. So, what will the second advent be like? I know. I know. Revelation 6. There are those who call for the rocks and mountains to fall upon them. But you know why they call for the rocks and mountains? Because in the presence of a love, you can't begin to imagine how far that love has gone for you. You can't bear to live on in the face of that love. Just as Judas, to whom Jesus spoke the word friend in the garden, found he could not go on living, having having wasted such wonderful love. Well, explore that a bit in your thinking, if you would. Uh, I want to go to one other thing our understanding of the church, um, its nature and its purpose. And I think it, it needs to be seen always in the light of the glory and the power of God as self-sacrificing love. That is a community of self-sacrificing people in harmony with the utter unselfishness of God. It's not an easy world in which to judge and measure things and to think in terms of success and failure. The church as a community of faith, as the body of Christ, of necessity must have organization and structure for the sake of its mission. That's as essential to to, uh, its mission as the body of Christ was essential to the incarnation. But the temptations to think of an organization of which we are a part, in whatever form you want to explore it, to think of it in terms of triumphant, the church triumphant, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, etc., etc. The, 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 the evaluating, judging, reporting, on the work and growth of the church, I'm afraid can. I'm not saying it does in all cases, but it can move subtly into a success mode in which we seek to judge by pretty common and worldly standards. My uh, good buddy Ivan and my dear friend Mark's messages have called us to remember that the last message of mercy to be given to the world, here's the, here's the point and the purpose of it, my friends. The last message of mercy to be given to the world, the Christ Object Lessons quote, is a revelation of God's character of love. The children of God are to manifest His glory. Wow. Really? Is that true? 
We, the instruments, the avenues through which the world, seeing Jesus in us, may be led, may be drawn, may be gently won to make a commitment of trust to the God of love. Right at the first of Mark's sermon, I had to listen to it afterward because we were gone last Sabbath. But then that was a great sermon. And right at the first of, of Mark's sermon, he, uh, I wondered where he was going. He talked about how hard it is to be good. And he did a masterful job. Uh, Mark, are you here? Amen. All right. <laughs> Mark, you made me want to be a part of God's peculiar people. I never thought that would be possible, but you did. Mark talk, talked about uh, altruism, unselfishness, about uh, being peacemakers, and about being temperate. And he got very practical about it with right down-to-earth illustrations. But he suggested that people who are unselfish and peace-loving and are, are balanced over against the, words demand, the world's demand for excess in self-indulgence, etc., and so forth, will be peculiar, wonderfully peculiar, in a world that needs that needs that witness so much. Thank you, Mark. You blessed us all. But then he, he went, work out your own salvation, you remember? And then Mark went on to say, work it out by being open to God's presence, to what God is eager to do in and through us. It's, it's a law of our beings, folks, that we become like the one we admire. And that's why focusing upon Jesus, the clearest manifestation, revelation of God, and what, what love is all about, the kind of, of, of giving and of focusing on the benefit of others, that that. You, you can't, we can't do that on our own, but as Mark said, by opening our lives to, to God, He is eager to work, be at work in us well, in ways that, according to Romans 8, will help us to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be like Jesus. Well, to, to, say, to see God's face at Calvary, to see God's face, is to not be surprised when among the closing scenes, how the, how the story ends that you find at the back of the book, Revelation 21, guess what our great God is doing? And he, God himself, will wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's the God of Calvary. And then in the early days of eternity, <laughs> there's going to be a party, folks. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we find ourselves seated at a table that God has prepared for us. And then rather than taking the place of honor at the head of the table to be served as the founder of the feast, our creator, our redeemer will serve us. 
Whoa. Someone has put it this way. He will serve us, the ones who gave him so much heartache. The ones who rebelled against his love and destroyed the world he gave us. The ones who poured out our rage and hatred on him at the cross. Yes, he will serve you and me. God will gird himself and serve us. He's the king with a servant's heart. This is the kind of person we will forever discover God to be. Meanwhile, we hear him, I've loved you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Our hearts, our thoughts, our lives captured by his power and his glory. Knowing the welcome of outstretched arms, the gift of salvation, welcome home, and open to his transforming power and presence as we travel on toward the heavenly kingdom. So we find ourselves part of that fellowship on the march in that pilgrim band that he's leading to the kingdom. And in the light of his power and glory, maybe, uh, maybe it goes like this. Sometimes I think God must be very old and very tired. Maybe he used to look splendid and fine in his general's uniform, but no more. He's been on the march a long time, you know. And look at his ragtag little army. All he has for soldiers are you and me. Dumb little army. Listen, the drumbeat isn't even regular. Everyone is out of step. And there, you see, God keeps stopping along the way to pick up one of his tinier soldiers who decided to wander off and play with a frog, or run in a field, or whose foot got tangled in the underbrush. He'll never get anywhere that way. And yet the march goes on. If God were more sensible, he'd take his little army and shape them up. Why, who ever heard of a soldier stopping to romp in a field? It's ridiculous. But even more absurd, is a general who will stop the march of eternity to go and bring him back. But that's God for you. His is no endless, empty marching. He's going somewhere. His steps are deliberate and purposeful. He may be old, and he may be tired, but he knows where he's going. And he means to take every last one of his soldiers with him. Only they aren't going to be any forced marches. And after all, there are frogs and flowers and thorns and underbrush along the way. And even though our foreheads have been signed with the sign of the cross, we are only human, and most of us are afraid and lonely and would like to hold hands 
or cry or run away. And sometimes we're not sure where we're going, and we can't seem to trust God, especially when it's dark out and we can't see Him. And He won't go on without us, and that's why it's taking so long. Listen, the drumbeat isn't even regular. Everyone is out of step. And there, you see, God keeps stopping along the way to pick up one of his tinier soldiers who decided to wander off and play with a frog or run in a field or whose foot got tangled in the underbrush. Will he ever get anywhere this way? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And so the march goes on. So go out in courage, children of God, scraggly little army that we are. Do not be terrified or discouraged, for the Lord your God, the worn general, says to you in the most unimaginable way, I have overcome. Amen.